Okay, church, turn with me to John 18. I thought about actually changing the scripture tonight to 1 Kings 18. That's where Elijah prays for rain <laughs> after three and a half years of drought and no rain. Right? We've only had a couple of months. Imagine three and a half years, right? And he prayed for rain and God answered. So, but no, we'll stay with this passage. Okay, we're not going to switch to 1 Kings. We'll stay with John chapter 18. And we are going to go through chapters 18 and 19 tonight. My wife said, are you really going to go through two chapters tonight? I said, yes, we are. So you'll need two things tonight. You'll need your Bible open, right? Because we're going to obviously not read every word of 18 and 19. So we're going to hop around. And so you'll uh, need to follow me along. And then you're going to need your, your Bible track shoes, okay? As we run through these chapters. So, let's see, arrest, claims of insurrections, riots and mobs, trials on the highest courts of the land, behind the scenes financial and political deals, weaponization of news and law enforcement, disregard for the rules of law. You may be wondering, why am I talking about today's news? And I'm not. I'm talking about chapter 18 and 19. (laughs) Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, there's nothing new under the sun. Right, And so we're going to see some of the same things we're seeing nowadays around the world, right? It's still going to continue um, and has occurred already in John 18 and 19. It just happens to be focused on our Savior Jesus Christ. So the, the title of tonight's sermon is Christ's Sovereignty and Passion. And when we think of the word passion... Um, it's not using it in the terms of what we commonly use in our vernacular today. I'm not talking about a, 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 um, a severe or over-the-top expression of an emotion. Like, I'm passionate for an individual. I'm passionate for my wife, right? Or maybe I'm passionate and anger in someone. That's not what I'm talking about. We use that word a lot, right? Even, even in worship, we, we have Passion Week, right? We have a Passion Conference um, in Atlanta every year. No, what I'm using this word for is what it means from the Latin pati, which means to endure or to suffer. So we're talking about the endurance and suffering of Christ when I talk about passion. And it's this period between the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross, that time period, which is actually chapters 18 and 19, is this passion narrative that we'll be talking about this evening. It's talking about his suffering, what he endured for everyone in this room. And then sovereignty, right? We've already, he's already made the argument John has that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God. He is deity. And therefore, he is sovereign. And we're going to see that, that he is what the enemy meant for harm and shame and death. Jesus is going to transform into honor and glory because he is sovereign. Um, think of an example. When I... When this, all the children have had splinters, right? And they come to me to have those splinters removed. And it causes them angst and pain for me to gurry in and get those splinters out, right? That initial pain. That initial suffering. But it was meant for what? Relief of pain and healing in the end, right? Same thing here. Jesus is going to endure lots of pain, both physically and spiritually, for each one of us. But it's for the glory at the end, for his honor, and for our salvation. 
So the big idea tonight that I want to leave you with is Christ transforms shame and death into honor and glory. Christ transforms shame and death into honor and glory. And we'll see that what seems at first blush that all is lost, that Jesus is done, his ministry is finished, disciples have no hope. We're going to see, in fact, that Jesus is in the control. Because he has already said in chapter 16, verse 33, I have overcome the world. And he has. And we're going to see what that means. He's just looking through a different lens than the world is. And we're going to see this evening that Jesus is going to confront the pact that the Jewish leaders made with Judas. That he's going to confront the priest. He's going to confront the politicians. And he's going to confront the penalty of sin. So let's begin with Jesus confronts the pact. And I'm going to read chapter 18 verses 1 through 12 in their entirety. Here's what God's word says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let those men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost no one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So in these verses, you see that Judas Iscariot is coming, right? He's made this pact with a religious leader for 30 pieces of silver, which was really an insult. It's only four months' wages, and it was the cost of replacing a, a slave who accidentally died when we see that back in Deuteronomy. So it was just 30 pieces of silver, not much, it was an insult to Jesus as being a, a rabbi. And that, but it actually fulfills Zechariah 11. So he's fulfilling prophecy about the 30 pieces of silver and what, what in the end what happened with the silver as he throws it into the temple and then the, the religious, leader, religious leaders use it to buy a potter's field. All that is prophesied in Zechariah 11. And so they're coming. And the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that Jesus comes up to him and kisses him to signify, this is Jesus. He's the one that I want you to arrest. And they come, and you see they've left nothing to chance. Verses 3 and 12, you see they come with what? A band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So this band of soldiers, how many do you think that is? Have you thought about it? Well, in the Greek, this band of soldiers is a Greek word for spira. It's 10% of a legion. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. This is 600 soldiers who are coming. And these are the soldiers that are stationed outside the temple. It's Passover. Hundreds of thousands of people are there. Extra enforcements are there. Um, the Roman government actually gave this cohort of soldiers to the Jewish leaders to help quell and keep peace 
uh, during the Passover celebration. So these 600 soldiers are here. And then you have the temple guard, the temple police. And who's in charge of this group? You look in verse 12, uh, you see that the banished soldier and their, and their captain. That captain, that word in Greek is a, not just any kind of captain. He is an officer in charge of 1,000 men. This is a battle-hardened commander. In today's vernacular, he would be a lieutenant colonel in charge of 1,000 men. This man knew what he was doing. He had 600 soldiers with him. And then all these uh, temple police. Matthew, Mark, and Luke just write that a great multitude came. They couldn't even count them, right? So many soldiers and officers were here. A great multitude came to arrest Jesus. And what are they armed with? Swords and clubs. Why so many men? Well, they didn't know how many disciples were following Jesus. They didn't know if the people would rise up during this time against them. Um, they didn't know if these people were wearing real red caps called mega hats, make Israel great again. This is the Messiah, right? He's trying to make Israel great again. They didn't know any of this, so they, they come in force. And from the Roman side, they want to enforce Pax Romana, Roman peace. They want to quell any type of disturbance, even during, and especially during the Passover celebration. They want to signify their control. They're, they're allowing the Jews to have their Passover celebration, but Rome is in control. And so we've sent extra forces here. And these forces are here to arrest Jesus. 600 plus men to arrest one man. And we know that they really were trying to, they came prepared to arrest him because they came with not only swords and clubs, but it says with lanterns. During Passover celebration, there's a full moon. <laughs> you can see everything in the garden. It's bright. You don't need lanterns unless you were intending to look at every nook and cranny. You wanted to be sure that you arrested this man. And so they came prepared. Judas, the other gospels tell us, kisses him to signify this is him. And then you see Jesus is actually in control. He's the one that initiates the conversation. You see in verse 4, Jesus speaks up. <laughs> Who do you seek? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he responds in verse 5. I am he. Now, I, when I read it first time, I just read I am, because in the Greek, that's all it says, I am. The, the translators have added the word he to help you understand the reading a little better. But he, just, he is saying, I am, which is important, right? Who is he signifying he is when he says, I am? He's saying he is God, right? Just like Moses before the flaming bush, I am who I am. And what happens they fall backwards and fall down. When it says they drew back, it says the Greek word is they're, they're staggering and stumbling like a big force has hit them. And when they fall down, it means they fall, fall down hard as if dead in the Greek. Uh, you get a little more nuance when you go back to the Greek language. So these men just stagger back at Jesus saying, I am the voice of God and fall down as if dead. 600 plus battle-hardened soldiers all falling down. Who's in charge in this scene, right? It's the sovereign Jesus. So Jesus in verse 7, and when they get back up, dust the dirt off their, their armor, he says again, who do you seek? And they said, we're seeking you, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And you see in 8 and 9, he's in charge. I told you that I am he. And then we see Peter. I love Peter. I can relate to him in many ways. Foot and mouth disease is one of them. But Peter comes prepared. Remember, it's been, they've heard many, many times that the Jews are after him, Jesus. And so he comes prepared that maybe they're going to try to come and arrest him tonight, or maybe something will happen. So he comes prepared with a sword, a Roman short sword, right? It's meant for defense. In today's vernacular, he concealed carry a pistol, right? That's what Peter's doing. He's coming to seem prepared. To what? To protect Jesus. A noble thing, right? And he takes action, right? They're coming to arrest Jesus, so he takes action. No, you're not going to take Jesus from me. And so he whacks with a sword. And so either, I don't know if he hits him from behind or forward. All I know is he hits his ear. If he's behind him or forward, it all means one thing. He was aiming for the head, right? Peter was intentional. He wanted to take the man's head off. He wasn't just trying to hit his arm or stab him a little bit or move him back a little bit. As Peter is full force Peter, full energy, he aims to whack the head off. And the man obviously ducks at the last minute and then loses his ear. We know his name is Malchus. The other gospels tell us what happened. Here it just continues, the story continues, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke it tells us that Jesus picks up Malchus' ear and does his last miracle before his death. He heals Malchus' ear. He puts it back on. Divine surgery. They were trying to silence Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He puts on an ear so they can hear his message. Right? How counterintuitive is that? Who's in charge of this scene? It's not the soldiers. It's Jesus, our sovereign Lord. Even witnessing the miracle, what do they do? They, they arrest him, right? They come forward to arrest him. They're not going to miss a beat. It doesn't matter. And Jesus tells them, please, you know, don't deal with my disciples, just arrest me. He's trying to protect them, right? Because Peter actually just did a capital offense, right? Trying to kill somebody. He, he could have been arrested and actually crucified that night as well. But Jesus said, no, I'm going to heal the man's ear. All evidence is gone. <laughs> There's no evidence that he sliced his ear. It don't matter. Don't, be with my, don't do anything against my disciples. Here I am. You know, and it's Jesus who offered himself to them. And they just bound his hands. Right? They didn't have to take him by force. Jesus willingly, voluntarily gave himself to the soldiers. And notice they never present any warrants, never any formal charge why they're arresting him. Right? The religious leaders had made a deal already through Judas with Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. Didn't care what the charge was. They were there to arrest him. Now, being arrested in public, it's a shameful thing, right? Everybody's talking, everybody knows, especially during Passover. You've got 100,000 of people. They're going to know that Jesus was arrested. And it's a shameful thing. But Jesus says, I'm doing my Father's will. Nobody takes my life unless I offer it. And he demonstrates his deity here by willingly surrendering, demonstrating his honor and his glory. So just think about it. He's, what are, his hands are bound, right? You imagine with a rope. This is the hand that just healed the ear. 
This is the hand that did so many miracles that's recorded in the Gospels. This is the hand that helped create the universe. And they bound it with a rope. (laughs) They had no idea what they were doing, right? You can't bind God's hands with a rope (laughs) unless he wants you to. So Jesus is in control of this. He has confronted this pact. He says, I'm going to offer my life here. I'm going to surrender. And say so he does that. And next he moves on to, he's going to confront the priest. We see in verse 19 that he has been taken to Caiaphas' house in verse 14, right? And Annas' house. So who is Annas? Annas is the former high priest. All his sons have already been high priests, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is now high priest. But he's the former high priest. He's actually the one politically in charge of everything, right? He's, he's the godfather of the high priest, right? He put all his sons in place, and now he's put his son-in-law, Caiaphas, in place. And so the Jewish leaders and officers take him to Annas. And we see that in verse 19 through 24. And he questions Jesus. Now let me just read those verses, 19 through 24. And the high priest, who's Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Implying in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Then Annas had him bound and sent to his son-in-law Caiaphas. What we're going to see in this passage as he confronts the priest is there are going to be three trials, all of them illegal. And this first one with the Annas is illegal. First of all, it's held in a residence, not in the court. It's held in secret at night, not in public display during the day. And he's trying to get Jesus to self-incriminate himself, which is against the law. In Jewish law, you were never supposed to ask questions of, of the defendant. You were supposed to actually bring in witnesses. That's why Jesus said, why are you asking me these questions? It's actually illegal for you to ask me these questions. You're supposed to ask the witnesses. Bring them in. They heard me in the temple. And of course, you're never supposed to strike a defendant. And this has occurred. Every aspect of this is illegal. So what does Caiaphas do? He bounds them, binds them again, and sends them to his high priest. Now, the other Gospels fill in the message between what happened with the Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas does another um, illegal trial, informal, and his held in secret. His is at night. His is of all his bribery. He has no defendant there to help Jesus. Um, there's no witnesses. He's trying to carry out the death penalty at night, which you're not supposed to. You're actually supposed to actually have a day in between the trial and sentencing. And you're never supposed to actually have a capital punishment decision before a festival, like Passover. He's breaking all these rules. And then he's, the next morning, they meet with a Sanhedrin, a formal trial, and it's just a kangaroo court, right? 
they, uh, they obviously find Jesus guilty. And on all the questions, Jesus does not answer anything. He is silent through all their accusations at Matthew, Mark, Luke. Except for one. When they ask the question, are you the son of God? He answers. Of course, in the affirmative that he is the son of God. Three legal trials with the religious leaders. They had already made the decision, right? Caiaphas already told us in John 11 that Jesus should die to quell this uprising. He had already made that decision. Guilty before trial. Illegal. This is the religious leaders, right? Who understood the Old Testament, who should have known better, who should have known who Jesus was. But the entire storyline, as we follow through the book of John, they have not accepted him as the Son of God. They have chosen to ignore that. And so what did they do? They bring him next to Jesus confronts the politicians. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. This is Pilate, Pontius Pilate. He's residing there during the Passover season. He moved around quite a bit. Um, but he's there during the Passover season to oversee, make sure that there is peace. And let me read part of this. First starting verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat in the Passover. Oh, the hypocrisy, right? <laughs> These religious leaders not wanting to enter a Gentile's home to defile themselves so they could celebrate Passover. Yet they just had three illegal trials. Even involving bribery, wanting to kill a man. But oh no, we're not going to step in a Gentile's house. That will defile us. Jesus had a word for the hypocrites, right? The religious leaders. He called them a den of what? Vipers. And here they're demonstrating that. So, verse 29, Pilate goes outside and asks, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered them over to you. They really didn't answer the question, did they? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show that what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate goes back and talks to Jesus in verse 33 and asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation? And then the words, no, I didn't think about it myself. <laughs> Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. In other words, Pilate, you have nothing to worry about. I'm not here to stir up things with Rome. My kingdom, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate sarcastically asked, what? What is truth? Right? In Pilate's world, truth was what? Subjective, right? At a whim. Could be bought, Right? 
After he said these things, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man from you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. His full name was Jesus Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber or insurrectionist, a revolutionary. Then Pilate took Jesus, verse 19, 1, and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I found no guilt in him. I've already punished him. Therefore, we don't need to go forward with crucifixion. I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man, not behold the God, not behold the Son of God, just the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, we, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Not that he came from God, that he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Because <laughs> uh, you know, it was common that day in Roman culture that um, the offspring of gods could be walking around the earth, Right? And so he's asking, well, where are you from? Are you from up there with Zeus or somewhere else? Or where are you from? And Jesus said, gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He's saying, the, the audacity of you not to answer me. I am the governor Pilate. I have power of life and death in my hand at this moment. And you're not going to answer me? Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would, not, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, which of course would be the religious leaders. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Interesting, right? Because he saw no guilt. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at the palace called the Stone Pavement in the Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation, the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, the chief priest, okay, Representing God answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be crucified. Pilate, known to be a people pleaser. He's also known to be, in all the historians show that he's cruel, ruthless man, um, competently really insensitive, didn't have any morals, could be bought with money. He only had the position here as governor because he married the granddaughter of Caesar. Way to get a promotion, right? He's going to marry his granddaughter. He's going to put him in charge. We all saw the hypocrisy of the religious leaders not wanting to enter. 
And Pilate is speaking to Jesus, trying to figure out why they want to kill this man. And they're bringing, they're bringing um, charges of a sedition, that he's wanting to overrule Caesar as a king. And we see Pilate stands in front of Jesus and sarcastically asks, what is truth? When he's looking at the very origin of truth itself. Hmm. Think about that for a moment. He's looking at the eyes of Jesus, the author of truth, and ask what truth is. Jesus, it's me. I'm right here. I am the truth, the way, and the life. Pilate three times answers in this passage, I find no guilt in him. At the same time, we see religious leaders three times say, crucify him. Pilate has Jesus flogged. Not just whipped, but flogged. This is that leather instrument that has uh, many leather strands on it with pieces of metal and beads and stone attached to it. And then actually some metal hooks at the end, like a scorpion's tail. And they would swing it, and it would wrap around the body, front and back. And you would pull it, and it would rip muscle and skin and sinews. And you you could only be allowed to do it 39 times, because by the 40th time, a person died. And so when Jesus is mocked by putting on the crown of thorns and his robe, he's already been flogged. He's already, his body is torn to pieces. He's lost so much blood, so much energy. He's half dead already. And they did this on purpose before they crucified people. They wanted them to be half dead. And he's standing there and they put that robe on his blood-soaked back and the thorns on his head and they mock him calling him the king of the Jews. Other pastors say they also beat him. They spit at him. They hit him saying, who hit you this time? Jesus knew every one the blow, right? He knew exactly who hit him. He is sovereign king. He's the Lord of Lords, king of kings. They did this to what? To shame Jesus. They Found him, they slapped him, they blindfolded, flogged, stripped, and killed Jesus by the end in this passage. And all what? To have shame, the great shame of this individual. But this Jesus' shame and humiliation here it was meant for his glory and our salvation. Remember that as we go in forward. He, he's confronting, confronting the politicians. He's in charge, right? He could have stopped any time. He could have called his angels down. He could have just said, I am one more time and all the soldiers disappear. Jesus was in control. He voluntarily went through all this for you and me. His sovereignty and his passion. And then starting in verse 17, we see what? They crucify him. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross so he's going down the Via Del Rosa, the, the trail of suffering. You can actually walk it today, go over to Israel and walk that trail of suffering. He's carrying that beam on the cross. On what back? He's already half dead. His back is torn to pieces, and they put that heavy timber on there for him to carry. Other, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually tell us what? That he can't make it all the way, and somebody else has to come alongside and carry it for him because he's that almost far gone, right? He's human. His humanity of Christ is shown here. 
he goes where? To the place of the skull, Golgotha. And verse 18, and there they crucify him with two others. In between two other thieves. More shame, right? Jesus placed between two thieves. And Pilate wrote an inscription to put on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jewish leaders read that, right? And said, I want you to change that. I don't want you to say king of the Jews. I want you to say he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate, just summarizing, says in verse 22, I have written what I have written. We're going to leave it as it is. And it was written in three languages, so everybody could read it, walking into Jerusalem for Passover. That he was the king of the Jews. Verse 23, when the soldiers are crucified, Jesus... So they put him up on the cross, right? His bare back against that boss cross, mutilating his body further with the nails and his wrists and his ankles and lifting him up. And they take his garments. So he's hanging there naked. Further shame for all to see. And they divide his clothes and they gamble for his loincloth. They didn't want to tear that. Want to be one piece, seamless. Guys, understand you want to have comfortable underwear, right? So that's why you, didn't, you wanted it seamless, right? You, you didn't want any seams. You wanted it to be one piece. So they're not, they're not going to tear that in two. They're going to gamble for it. And which do they do? And that was foretold in Scripture. And who's there? There's lots of people watching, right? There's always a crowd. Society has not changed. There's a crowd who watches at things that are happening that are evil and negative. There's a crowd watching the three individuals being crucified. But also, there's three Marys there. There's Mary, his mother, Mary, his aunt, Mary Kloppas, and then Mary Magdalene, and John. His family, his close followers are there watching. How shameful for that as well, right? He is confronting the penalty of sin. Genesis 2, 15 says what? The Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Of course, sin entered the garden. And of course, now we have the penalty of sin. That sin that affects us all, which is death. Genesis three nineteen: for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus had to die. And so he is crucified, carries his cross publicly, shame. Between two thieves, shame. On the cross, loss of complete power, hanging there for dear life, literally. Mutilation by nailing, further shame. In front of his family, shame. Suffering for us, shame and pain. And the worst of all, at some point during this, God places on him our sin. And at that moment, for the first time, Jesus is separated from God his Father. He is no longer holy. And his heart burst. And we know his heart burst because the spirit that's thrown in the side. And what comes out? That clear liquid like water and blood. It's a telltale sign of a, we have an autopsy of Jesus on the cross. His heart burst. 
The other gospels record the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying, remove this cup from me, Father. He's under so much anguish, he, 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 he sweats blood, right? I don't think Jesus ever was saying, take all this pain and suffering away from me. I think what Jesus, the cup that he's talking about is not being with his Father. For the first time, being unholy. And this had to occur. You think back to Leviticus when we study that together. What happens during a sacrifice? The sacrifice, the blood is spilled, and the priest does what? He puts his hand on the head of the sacrifice and what? Transfers the sin of the people to the sacrifice. At some point, that's what God did to Jesus. Put his hand, his spiritual hand on top of Jesus, and our sins, every one of your sins that you've ever committed, that you committed today, that you will commit in the future, was laid on Jesus. And Jesus knew that moment. He said, it is finished. It's recorded here in all four Gospels. It is finished. And his heart literally burst because the physical and spiritual life are intertwined, the Bible says, right? And he takes on our sin. And he dies. The atonement, though, has taken place. He has been the perfect sacrifice. The man who knew no sin, sacrifice, atoned for us. Blood has been shed. His sins have been cast on him. Our sins have been cast on him. We have been atoned for. And this shame is central to all of crucifixion. Every aspect of it. The Romans did this on purpose. They perfected crucifixion. It was meant to be public and humiliating and shameful and painful. But he endured it for us, right? And fulfills the prophecies that we see throughout Isaiah, our suffering servant. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, Jesus made himself to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He did that for who? For us. We just sang it. He took our place in the divine exchange. Hallelujah, grace is mine. That's the only way we can sing that because of what Jesus did. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame that was upon him, and is now seated in the right hand of God. And as we talked about last week, mediating for us. And as I was going through this passage, I couldn't help but we listen to the Gaithers every now and then. Um, and I couldn't help but think of uh, Jesus Messiah, them singing that. And he became sin who know no sin, that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Why? Love so amazing. Love so amazing. God loves you as much as he loves his son, we just talked about last week. Jesus loves you. He displayed that love for what he did on the cross. He fulfilled that in verse 28 and following that he died. Jesus died, right? We have that as a historical fact. He just didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He died. Roman soldiers made sure of that, right? They were going to go around and break his legs. 
as they tried to do the hasten death, because if you have a broken leg, you can't push yourself up to breathe as you have to on the cross. Then that pain's too much, and you have to let yourself back down. And so they break the legs so they help with basically you, you can't breathe, right? And you die quicker. Well, Jesus was already dead. And then we have recorded the Roman soldiers spearing him in the side to prove that he was already dead. And then he is buried. Verse 18, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. He was a rich man, right? He had means, means enough to what? To go straight to Pilate himself and ask. Pilate would listen to him. And so, yes, you can have his body. And so Joseph of Arimathea and who? Nicodemus, Right? who was a believer, part of the Sanhedrin, secretly believing in Jesus as well. They, and he had means, and he helped buy all the spices, and they buried Jesus in an honoring way. In a brand new tomb, in a garden. You see, Jesus is sovereign here, right? He gave his life on the cross. Not only that, why he's on the cross in all that agony and pain he looks to his mother and looks at John and says, John, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. He took care of Mary so she would not be left with anyone, without anyone in life. But John now is responsible for taking care of Mary. Because he honored what? He honored life. He honored family. He's taking care of her. And I find it interesting that you think about it, where, where did life begin? In a garden. Where did the fall begin? In a garden. Where's our atonement right now? In a garden. In a garden tomb. And where will we, we have our glorified bodies? In another garden. <laughs> right? The new heaven and new earth is a new garden. We have these pillars of gardens throughout history. Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. He's, re, he's restoring what happened when sin entered the garden the first time. He's atoned for it, and then he will glorify us in another garden. He's restoring that relationship with us. Shame and death, passion, all converted to honor and glory and, and uplifting Jesus' sovereignty. Now, I was with this passage so long, my Bible's come apart. So. <laughs> um, I mean, it's humbling to go through the crucifixion, right? And think about all that Jesus went through, right? There are things I could have said I didn't on purpose because we have little ears in the room. But he went through excruciating. That's where we actually get the word excruciating from the crucifixion. Excruciating pain and agony. And then there's that agony of the spirit, right? When our sins entered his body. But remember the big idea. Jesus Christ has transformed shame and death into honor and glory. That's what he came for. He knew the end. Disciples don't know it yet, right? They've all disappeared hiding except for John. He's right there. But they soon will come to understanding, right? They're going to get there. They're just on this side of the cross right now. 
we already know the other side of the cross, right? We know what Jesus did for us, the glory and his honor and our salvation. So what do we do with this passage? Normally we talk about it during Easter, right? But it's not Easter. So what do we do with this passage? How does this magnify the glory of Jesus Christ? First thing I want to ask you is, we have to determine what we're going to do with Jesus. Is he a liar, a lunatic, or a lord? Right? Are you like the religious leaders who rejected Christ because he threatened their pride and their self-righteousness? Or are you like Pilate, rejecting Christ because, while well, you have nothing against him, to follow him would have cost you your career and lifestyle? Or are you like the soldiers at the foot of the cross, rejecting Christ because you're just living the good times and are indifferent about eternity itself? Those are three bad positions to be in, right? You don't want to be that way. Ironically, you want to be like Jesus Barabbas. And you're saying, what? <laughs> are you like Jesus Barabbas, accepting Christ's death and place for your sins? What does Jesus Barabbas mean? Means Jesus, what? Son of the Father. Interesting. Jesus is the Son of God, right? He's the Son of the Father, not Barabbas. But yet we have this man named Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, whose name literally means the Son of the Father. And he was a revolutionary. Mark and Luke tell us that he had challenged Roman, Roman rule, he had rebelled. And so, what's happening here is it's more than a substitution. Jesus is more than substituting his life for Barabbas. He's exchanging it, right? Another, literally, a divine exchange. Jesus does not die instead of Barabbas. He dies in place of him as a substitute, as his representative. I.e., that's what he did for us. And the people here, the they choose Barabbas instead of Jesus. Why? Because he demanded nothing from them. No self-examination, no repentance, no acts of mercy or forgiveness. None whatsoever. He didn't ask anything from them, like Jesus does. You know, Barabbas was responding to Roman rule, how? With war and violence and strength. How was Jesus responding to Roman rule? With peace, innocence. And personal sacrifice. C.S. Lewis in his book, God in the Dock, says the following. What are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. So again, what are you going to do with Christ? Did he atone for your sins? Is he, is, is he your Lord and King? Did he die to be glorified? You have to make that choice. I can't make it for you. Nobody in the room can make it for you. It's a personal choice. Jesus asked each of us, what are you going to do with me? Second application, charcoal fire forgiveness. Charcoal fire forgiveness. It's like, what in the world do you mean? Well, some of you may have noticed I skipped the passages of Peter's denial, right? So in verse 15 and 18, 
of chapter 18 is the first one, right? He's asked, is he a disciple of Jesus Christ? And he denies them. And then 25 through 27, he does it again. He does this three times. And where is Peter at when he's doing this? He's around a charcoal fire, keeping warm. Three times he denies Jesus. Now, Jesus had told him that, right? He said, you're going to deny me before this is over three times, before the cock crows. Before the rooster crows. And what happens after the third time? Immediately, who starts crowing? A rooster. Fast forward to chapter 21, looking at verse 9. When they got out in dry land, the disciples, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus had prepared them a meal and around what? A charcoal fire. And then verses 25 through 27, what do you see? We see Jesus asking Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter is affirming his love for Jesus. Three times around charcoal fire, he denied him. Three times around charcoal fire, he affirms his love for Christ. What Jesus is doing here purposefully is redeeming Peter. He purposely asked him three times because he denied him three times. He didn't want Peter to have guilt or shame for denying him. He wanted to redeem that. He's telling Peter, you can leave your guilt behind. I know you love me. Once you confess your sin, you repent, and your sins are forgiven. That should have been an amen, right? Guilt does have a purpose. It is to move us towards repentance. But then you let it go. Confess, repent, and then let go. I'm not going to sing the Disney song. But you say, Pastor Charles, you don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't. Nor do I need to. Romans 8.1 tells me, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1.9 tells me, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The last one, Psalms 103.12 tells me, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west on the globe? Infinity, right? If I go east, I will always be going east. I never run into west. If I go west, I will never run into east. I'm always going west. That's how far your sin is. God does not remember it. Why should we? Do not let, don't hang on to guilt. Learn from it and let it embolden your faith and your testimony, but don't hold on to it. Let God turn that shame of death and sin into what? Glory, his glory and honor. Not yours, but his glory and honor. Peter did, right? And we see what he did in Acts. He didn't hold on to his guilt. He boldly proclaimed the gospel. We've studied Acts together as a church. We saw what Peter did for Christ and how God used him. Imagine what, how effective Peter would have been if he had held on to guilt. Not nearly as effective, Right? At all. He would have quenched the spirit. So imagine yourself right now around a charcoal fire. Jesus is asking you, do you love me? 
i.e. he's removing your guilt. Don't live in the guilt of sin. Why? He's paid the penalty already. Don't put him back on the cross. He's done it once and for all. You are free, free in Christ indeed. Amen? Now as the worship team comes up, I want us to reflect on something. In the early first century, if you looked at people's jewelry, they would have never been wearing a cross. Because of what? It was an emblem of what? Suffering and shame, right? It was an emblem of suffering and shame. You're not going to wear a cross around. But today, we see people wearing crosses on jewelry. We see them on stickers, bumper stickers, logos. So why do we use the cross now? Why do we wear it? It's because, the big idea, that Christ has transformed what? Shame and death into honor and glory. The Christ is now an emblem of what? His blood applied, our atonement. It's to give him glory. That is the reason. What man meant for shame, God has flipped it, right, and transformed it into an emblem of his glory, of what he has done for each one of you in this room. Now, the old rugged cross what, is a reminder of his love, his faithfulness, and the hope of his salvation. Let me pray. Father, we come before you, and it's hard to comprehend, Father, what you endured for us during this passion narrative. The pain and the suffering And obviously, Father, unless we go through it, we can't imagine it. We just know that it involves so much. And you did it willingly for me, for everybody in this room. You endured the shame and the pain and my sin. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for my atonement. Thank you for setting us free, for paying the penalty of our sin. Father, we give you all the glory and honor for your blood applied. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.